morning I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you find Psalms, you need to go closer to the front of your Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So a few books in front of Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 5. We might like to think that when we do God's work in God's way that we're always going to be met with rich and immediate physical blessing. But as we have been seeing in Nehemiah, there are challenges to doing God's work. That even when we do things in the right way for the right purposes, that there are challenges that face us. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw that the people of God must do the work of God with the strength of God despite conflicts from the enemies of God. Nehemiah, remember, had led people to rebuild the wall. And chapter 3 recorded the families who were involved. But then in chapter 4, they're met with opposition from specifically Sanballat, Tobiah, and their friends. And they were threatening to do physical harm to the Jews who were trying to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah prays to God and immediately gets to work on bolstering the confidence of the people and also defending the city from attack. And the work, this work is no small thing. It requires very much a high level of intensity in order to compel the men to continue with the work. He tells them, you need to stay the night. You can't go back home. You can't leave the city. You need to stay here so that you can defend the city. Remember, always keep your weapon on you. You can't, uh, you can't even take it off uh, when, you, when you go to get some water. So stay the night so that we can protect the city walls. They were at a critical part in Israel's history. They had already rebuilt the temple, as we saw in Ezra, and now they need to rebuild the walls because otherwise the enemies can get in and destroy the temple and pillage the temple, take all the gold and, and everything that's in it. The truth is that the challenges don't stop. The choices that we make to do God's work often create a ripple effect that uh, complicates the lives of others. It it complicates our own lives. When we choose to take a stand for the sake of God and for His Son, Jesus Christ, it often complicates our lives, doesn't it? It makes things harder. It, it, It invites more challenges. And that means that as people who are serious about God's desire and about advancing God's purposes, that we are going to have to deal with some complications. We're going to have to iron out some wrinkles that come up along the way when we're in the middle of doing God's work. And so I I hope to, at the end, apply that to us as a church and show you that, listen, even if we are doing the right thing and the right way, that there are going to be complications to doing ministry God's way. And we're going to have to work through how do we handle those things. So let's read uh, the text of Scripture that we're going to consider this morning. It is Nehemiah chapter 5. So I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax 
on our fields and on our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. The some, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I, Nehemiah speaking here, then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. And now, you would even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, The thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. Please, give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine, the oil that you're exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from that day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years. Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds, which were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. When we are involved in the work of God, we must be careful not to use people in order to advance our own position or our own, um, our, our own finances. Sometimes what can happen in the process of doing God's work we can see people as commodities, as an object to, to purchase what we want. So we use them, like what's, what takes place in the corporate world. We need to be careful not to do that. That's what's happening here in chapter 5. Notice the discovery of the problem in verses 1-5. through five. <clears throat> The discovery of the problem. <clears throat> there were two main factors that contributed to a crippling financial situation for the Jewish families. First, the men were spending all of their time working on the walls and defending the city from attack. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for, for 52 days, 
they were stuck at the wall doing the work. They were not able to go home at any time. They stayed there and they were doing the work. So the first thing that contributed to the financial crippling of society was that they were constantly at work. This was all volunteer work and so that meant that the families of these men who were working on the walls were left to take care of themselves. They were left to fend for themselves. They were struggling. They were not able to harvest crops without the men there that had been planted and they didn't have money to buy food. So that's the first thing that, that contributed to the, the crippling financial structure of society. second thing was found in verse 3. It says, There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. So in addition to this great commitment that the men had made to go and give themselves for effectively two months to rebuilding the wall, in addition to that, there was a famine in the land which made it even more difficult for their families to, to provide for themselves. And so no, notice the various kinds of challenges that the suburban families were facing. So people outside the city walls, they, they have to face these various problems. The first group is found in verse 2 and they effectively say, we don't have any food for our family. We need to be able to buy grain and we can't do that. The second group is found in verse 3. They have a difficult debt situation. This group was worse off than the first. Not only did they not have food, but they had to mortgage their property in order to buy food. See that in verse 3? We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards. So in order for us to get the money, we have to put a, a, a mortgage on our property. And with no men... To, to harvest the, the, the crops that they would be able to salvage, uh, very likely what was going to happen was that their field was going to be handed over to their debtors, uh, the people who had lended money to them. They would foreclose on their farmland and they would then have nothing. So they had taken the mortgage out on the land and then the mortgage was going to eventually foreclose because they weren't going to be able to repay it. The third group is found in verses 4 and 5 and they are a group that, that uh, show us that these people are in an impossible debt situation. So they're worse off than the first and the second group. It's not that they just couldn't get food or that they just mortgaged their property. These people are actually giving their children over to slavery. They, they could not even pay taxes on their properties according to verse 4. And as a result, they had to sell their children into slavery. This is a common practice in the ancient Near East that, that probably not in the slavery like we think about it, but they would... Uh, they would give their children to work effectively for a period of time and then once the family was able to save up enough money, then they would buy the children back out of slavery. So it wasn't like an indefinite thing, we'll never see you again type thing, but listen, we don't have anything else so we have someone that can work. So here, here's that person. And, and then to c complicate the situation even more, verse 5 says, the second part of the verse, yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. The idea there is, that some of the daughters, when they were sold into slavery, were being married off by, by the master or his son. And so it was creating a, a very difficult situation, and I would say an, an impossible debt situation, one in which they would never be able to recover. And so how terrible must it have been for these families they are sacrificing in many ways by giving up their husbands so that they can go and work on something that's valuable, something that's of that's God's desire, that, that they would rebuild the walls of the city 
And yet the consequences are unimaginable. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, the fifth book in your Bible, Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, and here Moses is giving his final message to the people of Israel before he dies. So at the end of his life, he gives a 24-hour uh, or a message that takes place within the course of, of one day. And he explains to them how they ought to follow God and, and, and uh, obey His commands and God will bless them. And notice what he says in verse 15. He says, "...but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today." that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then if you look in the next several verses, the verse starts with the word cursed. So he lists out a long list of curses and then skip down to verse 32. So if you don't obey God, then expect there to be curses. Verse 32, here's one of those curses. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing that you can do. So God's saying, listen, if you obey My commands, if you follow Me, I'm going to give you blessing. But if you don't, don't be surprised when you receive curses on the land. And specifically, one of the things that's going to happen is your sons and daughters are going to be sold into slavery to a foreign nation. Israel, in fact, did experience that at times. But turn back to Nehemiah chapter 5 because that's not what's happening here. It's not that the children of these faithful families who are giving up their husbands to work on the walls are disobeying God. They're actually obeying God here. They're doing God's work and they're doing it in God's way. And so it's one thing for them to receive the consequences of their sins, but, but these families are apparently innocent. They're actually doing what God wants. And further, the curse in Deuteronomy 28 was what, that their sons and daughters would be sold to foreign nations. Here, look at verse 1. There's a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. It's not against the foreign nations that are coming in and saying, hey, we're taking your sons and your daughters because you can't pay for your land. It's their own people. In Nehemiah 3, we saw the community working in a cooperative way. But what we find here is that it was not universal. Not everyone was behind this project. Some were using it as a means to advance their own financial position. They used it as a, as a way to advance their own economic position. And so when Nehemiah discovers it, notice his anger in verses 6 and 7. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. When Nehemiah received the report of what's going on, he was outraged. Not at the victims, not at God for allowing this to happen, but at the Jews. How could they possibly take advantage of their own brothers and sisters? Their own ethnic people. Notice verse 7. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles. So, this phrase, I consulted with myself, is actually comes from one Hebrew word. And the root is the same word that is used for the word king. So the idea is it's in a verbal form. So the idea is he kinged himself or he took control of himself. I think what's going on here is in verse 6, he becomes completely outraged. How could this possibly be happening? And then verse 7, he controlled himself before he took on the situation. 
So, so now he, he takes control, he calms down a little bit, and in verse 7, he approaches the wealthy Jews with, the righteous, with, I think, righteous anger. And he says this at the end of verse 7, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Apparently, these Jewish brothers were doing nothing illegal. But I think they were taking advantage of people who were not well off. They were profiting from the misfortune of other people. It's like when there's a, some kind of a scare in society, like after 9-11 and the gas stations all jack up their prices, right? We, we call it price gouging. Our government tries to protect us against that. But, but they take advantage of people who are in a panic, right? And that's what these, these families are doing. They're, they're in a panic. How are we going to get food? There's, there's a famine. We can't get any food from our own land. We don't have any men to help us. And so these men come along here. We'll take care of your situation. Here's some money, but you need to mortgage your property. And, oh, you've already mortgaged your property? Oh, you can't pay your taxes? Well, how about if you give your son and daughter over to slavery? See, we're trying to help you. See how they're taking advantage of people who are in a difficult situation? And so Nehemiah meets with them, and it seems like this first meeting is in private. He says, you are exacting usury against them. Against your own brothers. But then he holds a public meeting at the end of verse 7 says, Therefore I held a great assembly against them. He wanted this to come out to all the people. That what they were doing was not good. Now we might like to immediately apply something like this to our country. And certainly we must be careful not to exploit other citizens in order to advance our own financial or, or, um, or position of power we need to be careful about doing that. We must show concern for people, uh, I think, also who are being exploited by other people in our country. But I think a better application would be not for our country, but for us as a church. Could it be that we at times take advantage of members in this very church in a wrong way? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul warned the people against this kind of activity. That is, that they were taking some of their own members in their church to court. He says, wouldn't you rather just be wronged by them than to take this issue before a public court? Just settle it. You're supposed to be Christian brothers and sisters. So let me ask you frankly, in what way or ways might you use other people in this church in order to advance your own position? Do you develop relationships within this church in order to get the position that you want? Do you marginalize or criticize other people unjustly because you want people to see you as better? You know, if you can marginalize them, they will see you as better. Friends, that is the way that pagans live. That the people and relationships are disposable. They use these people and these relationships as long as they can get what they want. And then once they get what they want, that person is discarded. The pagans climb to the corporate ladder, to the top of the corporate ladder. How? By stepping all over their competition. Oh, they're bright smiles and things on the way up, but once they get past them, they, are, they see those people as scum. And this should not be the way it is among us as believers. The greatest among us is to be the greatest what? Servant. Absolutely. 
because that's the way our master is. We mimic our master. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. And that's why we sing that he is our precious lamb who bowed for us. He, he bowed for us. We bowed to him. He is the almighty God, but he bowed and, and stooped to serve us seen clearly in what he did at the cross, but, but probably the best picture is when he washed the disciples' feet and when in the marriage supper of the Lamb he will come and put a towel on and serve us at the table. In verses 8-13, to 13, Nehemiah gives an appeal to the Jewish officials. An appeal to the Jewish officials. He shows the wealthy Jews how terrible their actions were in verses 8 and 9. He says, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Listen, we've been brought out of slavery. We're out of that. And now, you're buying us back. That's the idea. We had been in slavery to Babylon, to these foreign nations. Now we're free of that. And now we're slaves to you? That doesn't make sense. Nehemiah appeals to them on the basis of their compassion. He wants them to see, listen, you need to care for these people's lives. Verse 10, And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. So he's saying, by example, I'm, I'm doing what you should be doing. And so here's his appeal to them. Please let us leave off this usury. Verse 11, Please give back to them this very day their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, hundredth of their money, grain, new wine, oil that you're exacting from them. So he wants to appeal to them on the basis of their compassion. Nehemiah is saying, listen, I'm lending them money, but I'm not charging the rates that you are. Apparently the Jews were charging probably usury would be probably 40 to 50% in interest. Something, again, that I, I think would cripple them and eventually make it impossible for them to ever repay it. Again, I, I think what they're doing, these Jewish wealthy, Jewish nobles are doing, I don't think it's anything illegal. They were doing what they had every right to do. Just like you could go to someone on the street and say, hey, listen, I'll lend you $100 if you give me $200 in two weeks from now. You could do that. That's 100% interest. Okay, but, but, but would that be right? Right? Is it illegal for you to do that? No. But Nehemiah's point is, for you to, to, um, to, to, to continue this is cruel. Right? You, you have made a ruling that if, they, if you lent them money, that they would have to repay it at this higher rate. But here's something. How about showing mercy to them? How about not following through on what you told them uh, that they had to do? How about sh- starting to show mercy? Apparently they were charging a, such a high interest that when, when the people couldn't pay, the lenders would take the collateral that they put on the loan and as a result, all their land and their crops and their possessions were all gone including their own children. And so as Nehemiah explains this to the people in front of the whole congregation of people, they respond in verse 12. They said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. There's no excuses here. You know, can't we make a living here for ourselves? Can't we help our own families? No, they, they recognize what they're doing is not the best. And so Nehemiah follows through at the end of verse 12. He wants them to take an oath in front of the people because it's one thing to say you're going to do it. We're going to stop uh, charging usury. We're going to stop taking their land. We're going to give everything back. 
It's one thing to say it in front of all the people. It's another thing to actually do it. So he says, all right, let's make this official. Priests, come up here. Let's have them make an oath in front of you. And that's what happens at the end of verse 12. He wants to show them how serious it is that they're making this commitment. And in verse 13, he does that. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. Here, Nehemiah gives a a picture. He has pockets in his robe and he effectively empties the pockets out onto the ground, throws all the stuff out and shows them his empty pockets and says, You see that? That's how I want God to treat you. I want Him to empty His pockets of you if you don't follow through on what you said you would do. So He's given them a word picture. In other words, you're not going to be a part of God's special people anymore if you don't follow through on this promise. And so they affirm it. Look at the end of verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. So all the people are in agreement with this. Yes, this is fair. This is right. This is what should be done. And then the, the people, that is probably the Jewish nobles who had been lending the money and taking the fields, they, they did according to what was promised. So Nehemiah comes in with his skillful leadership, squelches, the potentially volatile situation that would just send the Jews in in an economic spiral. And he does it simply by talking to the responsible parties involved. Then finally in verses 14 through 18, uh, well, not finally, second to finally, verses 14 through 18, the example that Nehemiah gives of his own life of refusing to burden the people. Here's Nehemiah. And he's already told them what they should do. And now he says, let me just show you how this should work. How this should play itself out. Because Nehemiah is not a man who simply barks out orders. Here in verses 14 to 18, he explains that he's a man who leads by example. By working hard to reduce the load of his people, even at his own personal expense. Look at verse 14 at the end of the verse. He says, listen, I've been here for 12 years. And and then notice this phrase at the end. Neither I nor my kinsmen, that is, people on my cabinet, my staff, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. Now, this might not sound like a big deal. Oh, you got a per diem. That sounds great. You 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 didn't uh, you didn't take the per diem. That's great, Nehemiah. But notice how many meals he was refusing. Look at verse 17. He tells, for these 12 years there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And notice what he prepared. Now that which was prepared for each day. So 150 officials I was feeding every day, in addition to myself. And we were feeding them one ox and six choice sheep along with birds. And then every tenth day we had these uh, special wines that we'd bring in. So this is not a small thing for him to say, I'm ignoring or I'm refusing the governor's food allowance. Over the course of 12 years, they would have slaughtered 4,000 oxen and a quarter of a million sheep. And he could have, if he wanted to, as the governor of Jerusalem, he could have easily charged that to his credit card. Which meant that who would have to pay for it in the end? The taxpayers, right? The people would have to pay for it so that the governor could be 
cared for so that he could eat with his officials. Now, would that have been illegal for Nehemiah in his position as governor to charge to raise the taxes? No. He had every right to do so. That's part of being governor. He could raise the taxes. Would it have been unethical? Well, I don't think it would have been unethical. He's acting within his own rights. But, but here's the thing about Nehemiah. He considers the people and the burdens that they already have, the needs that they have, and he doesn't want to put more on them. And so he said, you know what I did? All the money that was necessary to pay for those meals for me and my official work business, right? My, my official business with these other officials. It's not just, hey, let's go have a party. I paid for all that out of my own pocket. Why? Because I was not going to weigh down the people any more than they had already been weighed down by the work and the difficulty that comes up with doing God's work. And you know what makes this even more amazing? Look at verse 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread, wine, besides 40 shekels of silver, even their servants domineered the people. Saying, listen, before I came into office, effectively, there were governors who before me were already increasing taxes in order to pay for their food allowance. And they were adding on top of that, 40 shekels of silver were due. They were domineering the people. And they had every right to do so in their position of power. And so what makes this more amazing is that Nehemiah is actually breaking precedent, isn't he? He's saying this has already been in place. It would have been easy just for him to say, well, we're just going to continue doing what we've been doing. The former governors, they were taking the governor's food allowance. I'm going to take the governor's food allowance. No one's going to feel any difference. I'm not going to raise any taxes. I'll just keep them the same. But instead he's saying, I'm getting rid of all that. I'm not going to take advantage of you any more than I have to. I'm not going to do it in a way that's going to cripple you. Why? Because my intent is to build the wall. Look at the end of verse 15. Why didn't he do that? Because of the fear of God. Nehemiah is saying, listen, all these other governors had every right to take the taxes from the people and I do too, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to burden the people. In addition to that, verse 16, look at verse 16, I also applied myself to the work on this wall. So he's not sitting back saying, you know, hope you guys can get this wall done. I'll be sitting in my governor's palace uh, eating grapes and I hope that works out for you. Let me know if you need anything. No, he's out there with the sword on his hip, putting his hands to work, isn't he? He's saying, I put myself to the work. I wanted the people to recognize that I'm not above them. I'm with them. And another advantage that he refused is found in verse 16 at the end of the verse. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So he's saying, as governor, I had the opportunity to take land from you or to buy other land at a bargain price, at wholesale price effectively. I could have done that, but I didn't want to cripple you or your families anymore because I came here for a specific purpose. I came here to rebuild the wall because I fear God. And so he's telling these Jewish nobles, this is how it ought to be. We ought to consider the the needs of other people, the burdens of other people, and try to take some of those burdens off of them and put them on ourselves. 
Look at his prayer finally in verse 19. Okay, this is finally, finally. Verse 19. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, as he's been doing throughout this book, stops and gives uh, a prayer to God, talks to God, and asks for God to bless him according to his obedience, what he had done. He's not looking for God to, to pat him on the back or something. He's simply saying, listen, I've been faithful to you, God, and I, I understand and, and am confident that you will be faithful to me. So, when we are involved in the work of God, isn't it amazing that, that other people, there, there are ripple effects to the work that we do. That, that we create, in some way, burdens for other people. And so, we have to be careful not to use people in order to advance our own finances, our own position of power. Nehemiah is highly offended at the exploitation by the Jewish nobles. And the reason for this great anger is because he is concerned about something much bigger than protecting the inheritance of the people or protecting their original land or something like that. Nehemiah is seeing the bigger picture. He wants to make sure that people are not only acting lawfully, but also in the spirit of the law. Saying, you know, as governor, I can do whatever I want. I mean, I, I have the rights to do these kinds of things. And as Jewish nobles, you have the rights, effectively, to do it. You're not doing anything illegal, but I want you to operate according to the spirit of the law, which is to seek compassion on these people. Show love to them. Mercy to one another as God has shown mercy to you and to me. So let's think about this for a minute with regard to our church. What is it that you want in this church more than anything? Do you want financial stability? There's nothing inherently wrong with desiring financial stability. But if you're going to use people in this church because of their generosity in order to advance your own position, then can I say to you what Nehemiah said to the Jewish nobles in verse 9? The thing which you are doing is not good. Maybe you are financially stable, but you want to have greater wealth than you have now. And you know that if you leverage yourself in this church, make proper relationships, and you can advance your business, reduce your expenses in some way, and as a result, live a much easier life. Or maybe you know that you can advance your financial position by being a member of this church and not giving to the church because you want more money in your bank account. And if that's the case for you, then I would say to you, the thing which you are doing is not good because those who desire to get rich fall into a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Because if you love money, you have found yourself at the root of all evil because some who have longed for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many griefs and sorrows. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Maybe it's not financial position that you're aiming for. Maybe it's a position of power or recognition that you're using people within this church in order to get. 
If you're willing to exploit the weaknesses of other people or use people like the pagan world does in climbing the corporate ladder, then what you're doing is not good. Every single one of us needs to recognize that there are benefits of being part of this church. But ultimately, the church does not exist for you. And the church does not exist for me. You exist for the church. I exist for the sake of the church. God made you to be a provider in this assembly. A fountain of mercy and compassion who is always giving of yourself for the sake of the body. And as long as you are coming to this church in order to advance yourself and to take, 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 then you will live a miserable life. Because that is not what God saved you to do to take from His church. He saved you to serve the body and to give yourself for the sake of the body and to carry your own load, Galatians 6.5, while at the same time helping to carry the burdens of other believers, Galatians 6.1. See, that's what Paul's calling us to do in Galatians 6. He says, carry your own load. You have a load, you have a burden that you're carrying, carry it yourself. And then you need to look out to other people and see how you can help carry their load. That's what spiritual maturity is about. It's not saying, I've got this load, please somebody help me. It's, I'm going to carry what I, I have responsibility for and I'm going to help other people to do the same. Help carry their load. So let me, so let me ask you, how is it that you are providing for this church? Can you think of two or three ways that you can find out what one of the, the burdens, one of the needs of another member in this church is and move to meet that need this week. Can you think of two or three ways? Maybe it's a card of encouragement. Maybe it's a phone call or a chat over coffee. Maybe it's a prayer and a text message letting them know that you're praying for them. Maybe it's providing a meal. Maybe it's giving a ride or helping out on a project. Maybe it's sitting down and reading the Scriptures with somebody. Maybe it's just encouraging somebody who's discouraged or helping someone who's weak or warning someone who's unruly. What, what few ways can you this week find out one of the burdens of someone else in this church and seek to meet that need? What need does your fellow believer have right now that's just weighing on them and, and just crippling them Spiritually, What can you do to follow Hebrews 10.25 which says to consider one another so that you may provoke them to love and good works? How, how can you provoke someone else? Through your personal love and compassion so that they move on towards greater spiritual maturity. See, when we come with that sort of mindset where we're not coming, hey, I'm going to be consumer today. But we come to church as if what can I do to provide for the needs of the body? What is it about someone else that I can do to help them today? And I think that's where Nehemiah's mindset is. He's not concerned about himself and advancing his own position. He's about doing the work of God, recognizing that there are ripple effects. They're going to cause sometimes difficult situations for other people. But he comes along and says, listen, let's, let's be examples in this way. And let's show love and compassion to these people who, yes, they entered into an agreement when they're in a difficult position, but, but is there any way you can just be merciful and let them go? 
Nehemiah was all about doing God's work because he feared God above all else. He's most concerned about God's desires and he was even willing to cripple himself financially, wasn't he? In order to advance his own people. Let's pray. Father, show us real ways in which we can respond to Your Word this morning. Show us specific ways in which we can uh, seek out the needs of other believers within this body and show love to them. Because, Lord, if we can't show love for those whom we have seen, how can we love You whom we have not seen? Lord, I, I think one of the clearest expressions of our faith is how we show love to other believers. And so I pray that You would give us the the power. Empower us with Your power to be able to do these acts of righteousness for the sake of advancing Your church. Lord, we don't exist. Uh, or the church doesn't exist for us individually. We exist for the church to contribute to its needs and ultimately for Christ so that He would be magnified as this church is being transformed into a radiant bride so that so that we would be counted worthy of the gospel that we've been given or we recognize we're not earning our salvation we cannot earn it but but that this is a response to what Jesus has done for us to so help us to to see that connection properly and then to respond in faith and obedience and love we pray for your help in that in Jesus name amen